What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having an amazing week so far because we have a lot to talk about today. This podcast is going to cover three specific topics. First off, we'll talk about Topgolf. Topgolf was acquired by Callaway in 2021 for $2 billion. But more importantly, Callaway's a public company, so we get an inside look at Topgolf's financials now, and they are fascinating. We'll run through how much these things cost to build, when they break even, how much revenue they bring on an annual basis, and even a $200 million technology business that may be coming up the pipeline. Second off, we're going to talk about Job Morant. He obviously had another incident this past weekend, and there is a huge financial impact coming because of this. He could be losing 100 or more million dollars, and I'll break it all down. Thirdly, we're going to be talking about Peacock. The NFL announced today that they are getting an exclusive playoff game in the wildcard round this upcoming season, and it is obviously a big deal. The NFL media landscape is changing along with everything else across sports, and we're going to run through what impact this has on you as a fan. So without further ado, let's get right to it. All right, so today we're going to start with Top Golf, And I think the most obvious thing is that everyone knows golf has seen an explosion of interest over the last several years. For example, in 2022, 3.3 million people played golf on a golf course for the first time ever. So their first time ever was playing golf in 2022. 3.3 million people played for the first time. That was 50% higher than the previous record of 2.2 million. Can anyone guess when that was? It was during Tiger Woods' historic season in 2002. So literally over 20 years ago was the last time we had more than 2 million people play golf for the first time in a calendar year. Last year in 2022, 3.3 million people played golf for the first time ever. It is obviously a huge momentum swing for the sport of golf, and it's not slowing down. Nearly 30% of the 2022 golfers were 18 to 34 years old, so a good demographic from an age standpoint. And junior golf participation increased 36% last year, and even the professional level is seeing a huge swing in fan viewership. The designated events that the PGA Tour introduced this year, those tournaments are up 14% in viewership the final round. So obviously there's an interest in not only playing golf as an amateur level, but also the professional level. So the, the, the question is, what's driving this growth? COVID, of course, had something to do with it, for sure. People wanted to get outside to socialize and exercise while gyms were closed. And a portion of that crowd has continued to enjoy playing and watching the game of golf. But still, a large portion of this is undoubtedly driven by non-traditional models. Tough golf is the best example. It's an arcade-style driving range business that currently has more than 80 locations in nine different countries. They brought in $1.5 billion in revenue last year alone, and 10% of all recreational golfers say Top Golf was their introduction to the sport. 10% of every single recreational golfer in the world today says Top Golf was their introduction to the sport. That is astronomical from an influence perspective, and I think they are just getting started. So today we will break down all the business. Top Golf is now doing $1.5 billion in annual revenue. That's up from $630 million in 2017. It's growing at a compounded annual growth rate. I think that's like 13 or 15%. So the business is growing year over year at a solid rate. They did $1.2 billion in revenue in 2021, $1.5 billion last year. They'll do probably even close to $2 billion or more this year. And the company was acquired for $2 billion by Callaway in 2021. They've opened 13 new locations in 2022, and they expect to open 100 more new locations by 2030. They're opening up 10 or more new locations every single year. And there are other sports now copying their model. I'm sure some of you guys saw that Formula One is opening their first arcade here in the United States in a Boston Seaport location in early 2024. They obviously already have one in London, 
And there are thousands of people visiting this location every single month. I think it was 8,000 people a month, which is really, really impressive. And it's the same model, right? You can go there, you can play Sims, you can drink, you can hang out, you can eat food with your friends. Same exact model as Topgolf. It gives you an introduction to the sport that you necessarily wouldn't play on your own. But I want to talk about an overview of Topgolf, and then we'll get into the actual businesses and the economics behind each one. So for those that don't know, Topgolf was founded in 2000, and they basically just wanted to introduce a new way to play golf. They took the old model, which was just these driving ranges where you would show up and you would pay for a bucket of balls and go hit on your own, and they wanted to make them entertainment venues for people to play games, technology-enabled golf games, accompanied by family, friends, music, food, and drinks. And the concept has become immensely popular. Topgolf's total addressable market is significantly bigger than a traditional golf course because you can bring your friends. You don't need to be a golfer. You don't need to have your own clubs. You're going to come eat, drink, all that kind of stuff. So their total addressable market is much, much, much bigger. And it's more diverse too. Topgolf put this chart in their last presentation. I thought it was really interesting. The average age of a Topgolf user or consumer or customer is 31 years old. Of an actual golfer on course is 46, right? So it's significantly younger. It's higher female percentage. 41% of the Topgolf customers are, are females compared to 28% on course. It's higher percentage of non-white members. 40% of the members at Topgolf are non-white compared to 22% on the golf course. 40% of the members at Topgolf for the customers have a household income of $100,000 or more. And look, this is just a much more diverse demographic than on-course golfers. And this past year, we crossed over 40 million golfers in the United States alone. That includes on-course traditional golfers, people that play full rounds, and off-course golfers. And for the first time in history, off-course, what we'll call off-course golfers, right? So the people that visit Topgolf or Shack or something like that, now are more. They outweigh traditional golfers, right? So there's more non-golfers or off-course golfers than there are on-course golfers. That absolutely blew my mind, but it makes sense, right? As I just said before, the total addressable market is much bigger for this business, and this has made them very popular from a financial perspective also. Topgolf had sold 14% of the business to Callaway through two separate transactions in 2006 and 2018, and then Callaway came calling back in 2021 to acquire the remaining 86% that they didn't own at a $2 billion valuation. Again, like I said, they now generate $1.5 billion in annual revenue. That's a 16% compounded annual growth rate over the last five years. And surprisingly, Topgolf now accounts for nearly 40%, 39% of Callaway's total revenue. So Callaway did $3.99 billion in revenue last year. Topgolf did $1.5 billion. That's 39% of their total revenue. Now, this is the interesting part about Topgolf. The majority of their revenue comes from physical locations, but they're also building this huge technology business that's used on golf broadcasts and by other driving ranges throughout the world. So I'm going to break down both of them, and I want to start with the venue economics themselves. Topgolf currently has 80 venues in nine countries. They opened 13 locations last year alone, and they plan to open another 150 venues by the end of this decade. Most of these venues are large venues, what we'll call medium to large venues. That's about 75% of their venues. 25% are small to medium venues. Large venues have 100 plus bays, right? So 100 plus areas for you to hit. They're multi-level, et cetera. These venues cost anywhere between 30 to $40 million to build, depending on the location and the cost of the land. And they generate anywhere between 20 to $28 million in annual revenue. They're targeting a cash on cash return of 50 to 60%. And they have an estimated payback period of just two and a half years, right? So let me make sure you guys understand this correctly. 75% of top golf venues throughout the world today, have 100 or more bays. They cost 30 to $40 million to build, depending on the location. On average, they generate 20 to $28 million in annual revenue. 
They target a cash on cash return of 50 to 60%, and they have an estimated payback period of just two and a half years. Now, the economics of these venues are so strong because the majority of Top Golf's revenue comes from events and food and beverage, not gameplay, right? Gameplay, when you go to a traditional driving range, they make the most of their money on you actually hitting the balls, on you renting the balls, right? They're not counting on people coming after work to get drinks and food and hang out and do all these different things. Now, it's a little bit different for private clubs, which is about 25% of the clubs in the United States today. But your traditional driving range, they're barely making any money on that stuff, right? They're banking on people coming late night, on the weekends, whatever it is, to practice and hit golf balls on their own. They're not necessarily bringing friends. They're certainly probably not eating or drinking or spending a bunch of money on other stuff. They're simply renting balls. Topgolf flipped this model on its head. They now get 34% of their annual revenue from events, right? So that's people renting out the venue for large groups. It could be uh, corporate parties. It could be birthday parties, stuff like that. They get 33% of their revenue from food and beverage and 29% of their revenue from gameplay. There's a smaller category on top of that too. That's about 4% from merchandise and clubs and other stuff like that that you can buy at Topgolf. But the vast majority call it, you know, 70% of their revenue is coming from events, food, and beverages which is almost non-existent for the other driving range businesses in the U.S. today. Now, this is taking a toll, though, because Topgolf is growing so fast. So if you look at Topgolf's business today, they had $1.5 billion in revenue last year, but they only generated $3 million of profit in Q1, right? So even if you extrapolated that over the entire year, that's only $12 million of profit for a $1.5 billion revenue business. It's obviously not enough. It's not great, and investors don't love it but that's because they're in growth mode. Like I just said, they're opening 10 to 15 of these venues every single year in places throughout the world. And they have $1.2 billion in venue financing liabilities right now today as they try to add all these venues. So what are investors looking at? They're saying this is a high growth company. They're obviously investing a lot of money in growing these venues. The economics of the venues themselves are really strong, right? An estimated payback period of two and a half years is really good. 50 to 60% cash on cash returns is great. And you're getting a good IRR from these investments. So what do you do? You keep investing, you keep building and so forth. And now they're making up a good chunk of the valuation too from Callaway's standpoint. They bought the business at a $2 billion valuation. It's probably higher than that today, even with the changing economic conditions. And Callaway, I think, has a market cap of like $3.2 billion. So even though it represents 39% of the revenue, it probably represents a higher percentage, 50 to 60 to 70% of their actual market cap today, depending on how you want to value Topgolf as a business specifically. Now, I think this is interesting because they also have another business that today is very, very, very small, and most people probably don't even know about that could potentially become much bigger because Callaway is investing a lot of money in it. What am I talking about? I'm talking about their top tracer range technology. So if you go to a Top Golf location today, I'm sure most of you have probably done it by now. I know I've certainly gone. It's a big business like we're talking about. If you go and you hit the ball, they have these games where they track your shots, right? They can tell you the flight path of the shot. They can tell you the distance. They can tell you the ball speed, the spin, all of that stuff. And this technology, they are the owner, the operator, and the licensor of that technology. And to give you an example of kind of how this works, they license it to all the biggest golf tournaments in the world. It was on 275 national TV broadcasts last year alone. So when you look at the biggest golf tournaments in the world, you're watching them on TV, and they show the flight path of the ball, they show you the distance, they show you all that kind of stuff. That's all Top Golf's technology. It's called Top Tracer Range Technology, and it's used by all of these different TV broadcasts. So they license it out and they collect a fee for using it. But not only do they license it out to the broadcast, they license it out to other driving ranges across the world. So there's 750 driving ranges right now that use it across 31 countries, and that includes 22,000 bays. 
right? So 22,000 individual bays at driving ranges in 31 countries, 750 driving ranges use this technology today. And the economics are fascinating too. So they don't charge an install fee. They come and they set it up for free, no problem, no install fee. Then they charge $160 per bay per month or $2,000 annually. It's active in 22,000 bays worldwide. And if you do that math, I don't necessarily always do public math, but I was able to write this out beforehand. 22,000 bays at $160 a month or $2,000 a year is $44 million in annual revenue. Now, look, that sounds like a lot, but in context, it's only 3% of their business today. If you divide $44 million on an annual basis by their $1.5 billion in annual revenue, 3% of the business. So it's still relatively small, but Callaway thinks it can get much bigger. They said their short-term goal is $200 million a year per year business. That would be obviously a significant chunk of that $1.5 billion a year business. And my guess is they could probably even get it more, right? This is a subscription business and it's not that saturated right now. If you look at 750 driving ranges across the world in 31 countries, that's like probably a really low percentage penetration. I don't know how many driving ranges there are, but my guess is it can get much bigger. They're installing 1,500 more bays in Q1 2023 alone, and they plan to reach 7,000 additional bays this year, right? So adding 7,000 on top of 22,000, it's not quite 50% gains, but it's very close and it is very impressive. So that brings me to my next point. We've covered kind of how the financials work, the economics of this business and why it's interesting. But what about the future, right? If you look at Topgolf and Callaway as a, as a business together, they're kind of headed in like almost two different directions. And I think that's what made this deal so fascinating. Topgolf by itself has built an incredibly impressive business. I don't think anyone would argue that. They went from $0 in annual revenue to $1.5 billion in the span of two decades. They now have nearly 10,000 employees and 65,000 people visit their venues every single day throughout the year. 65,000 people visit Topgolf venues every single day throughout the year. That's absolutely crazy. But Callaway's story just doesn't excite investors nearly as much as Topgolf's. Callaway's stock, for example, hit an all-time high of $38 a share in 1997, and it now sits at $18 a share more than 20 years later. Their chart is essentially sideways. If you pulled up Callaway's stock price chart, it's sideways, right? They have a market cap of $3.26 billion. Year to date, it's down 12%. Over the past year, it's down 20%. And over the past five years, it's down 7%. It's just straight red, right? It's not impressive. And the earnings didn't help either. The stock dropped a considerable amount over the past earnings call, even with strong earnings from Topgolf. So what happens here, right? Callaway has been trying to do a bunch of different things over the last few years. They've spent $750 million on acquisitions like Jack Wolfskin, Travis Matthew, and Ogio. Yet Topgolf accounts for nearly 40% of their revenue today. And look, I think they can do a bunch of different things here. They're now leveraging the Topgolf brand Callaway is to sign different athletes. So if you look at the world number one player today, John Rahm, he was sponsored by TaylorMade. Callaway was able to pull him away. He now uses their golf equipment, but he also sports a Topgolf logo on his polo right? And the polo is from Travis Matthew, which obviously Callaway owns also. The same thing is true for Sam Burns. He has the logo on his polo as well. So Callaway is using this to kind of double dip on the sponsorship side, which I think is really, really, really smart. And then they've also done a bunch of other stuff, right? So when you go to a top golf location, say you love it, say you go three, four, five times, you want to start playing golf yourself on a course, you can buy custom fit Callaway clubs at a top golf course. You also get a 50% discount on club fitting when you spend $300 or more on Callaway clubs. I don't know why I just made that sound like an ad. It's definitely not. That's just a fact, right? Like they're integrating the Callaway brand within the Topgolf locations, which I think makes sense, right? You can now buy memberships. 
There's product placement, so you can buy the the clothes that Callaway offers at these locations too. Again, it's a small part of their overall business, but you have to find ways to intelligently integrate these brands into the workflow and create synergies. And I think they're doing that. And it's only going to get bigger, right? The economics of these businesses are really strong on a per venue basis. And now it's just about expanding. And it's about driving awareness through your athletes and through your, your products that Callaway is already offering. And ultimately, what you're able to do is you're, you're creating an exciting offering by onboarding people into the golf world, right? You take someone who has never played golf before. You bring them to your location. They fall in love with golf. And then you say, hey, look, buy a Travis Matthew polo to wear on the course. Buy Callaway clubs to play with. Come to our Top Golf location to practice, right? And you can use Top Tracer technology at your range, too, if you don't want to come to Top Golf. You're building this interesting ecosystem where it's really compelling for golf fans to fall in love with the sport. And what we had seen was like the growth of golf stagnated and actually declined for a while as the population in the U.S. was growing and the, and the interest in sports overall was growing. Golf did not take advantage of this. And it was a huge mistake. And now that's changed a little bit, right? People are trying to get outdoors. There was a huge bump from COVID. I think Top Golf is a part of that. The PGA Tour is becoming more popular as they've changed and they've got a competitor in live. And look, my guess is that this expands over the next few years. I think Topgolf is going to continue to add locations, but I don't know what's going to happen to Callaway stock because this is just one piece of it, right? The company's valued at $3.2 billion today. I don't know how you want to value Topgolf. They were bought for $2 billion at a $2 billion valuation. Maybe it's higher, maybe it's a little bit lower, but they're only generating about $12 million in annual revenue or annual profit today. They have to increase that if they want a good multiple on the business and investors to get excited about it. So we'll see what happens, but it's fascinating to me. I had no idea how much some of these venues cost, how quickly they made their money back, and how the technology business worked for ranges and broadcast. I hope you guys learned something new today. Let's get into our first sponsor of this episode, and then we'll be back with topics two and three. All right, everyone, a quick interruption from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Hyperice. So Hyperace is one of the fastest growing companies in sports. You've probably seen their products by now, but they are the official recovery technology partner of the NBA, MLB, PGA Tour, and UFC. And a bunch of different athletes all around the world are using their stuff, like Patrick Mahomes, Erling Holland, people like that. Now, I'm super pumped about this partnership for one reason. I've been using Hyperice products for years. I use their massage gun and their heated back wrap several times each week. Anytime I have a tough workout or my back's hurting me a little bit, I throw it on and it is a game changer for my health and wellness. I think the coolest part for me personally is that I can use the same stuff that professional athletes are using. The same thing that Patrick Mahomes uses on the sideline to loosen up his muscles, I can use at home. The same thing Erlen Holland uses on his back to loosen it up before bed, I can use at home. I think that's absolutely incredible and I highly recommend their stuff. So the best part is they are giving all of you, my podcast listeners, 15% off your order. So start recovering like a professional athlete today. Go to hyperice.com and use code Joe 15 for 15% off your order. That's Joe, J-O-E 15, all caps at hyperice.com. 15% off your order. Let's get back to today's episode. All right. The next thing I want to talk about today is Ja Morant. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on talking about if he did something right or wrong. There seems to be a decent amount of discourse online of kind of like the incident in general and, and what he's allowed to do and what he should be criticized for. The one thing I'll say about this is that, look, John Moran's 23 years old. People are saying he's young, he's young, he's young. You got to grow up, right? Like this is a huge deal. It's becoming a big deal. For those that don't know what's happened, he's had a few different incidents over the last few months and few years. He was accused of flashing a gun at the Pacers team bus. He was accused of threatening a teenager with a gun at a pickup basketball game at his house. He flashed a gun in a strip club on Instagram, which led to an eight-game suspension. He went to rehab for that as well. 
And this past weekend, he was caught on Instagram Live with a gun as well, just flashing it, right? He's not shooting anything. He wasn't necessarily doing anything illegal if he has a permit to carry the gun and so forth. But he was flashing it around on social media and people took notice. The Memphis Grizzlies have suspended him indefinitely from all team activities. The NBA is reviewing the incident. Nike's commenting on it as well. And it's a huge deal. And the reason why it's a huge deal is because John Morant is very, very, very talented. He's one of the best players in the NBA today. Again, he's only 23 years old. He's an American player, right? Like if you think about the best players, young players in the NBA today, there's a bunch of people. There's Giannis, there's Luka, there's Jokic. Obviously, there's American players too. But Ja was seen as like one of those really good young American players that could be the face of the NBA for years to come. And he also had an amazing play style, right? Like he's super explosive. He's dunking on people. He's unapologetic. Like people love how he plays. He's got 10 million followers on Instagram. His jersey last year was the eighth most popular jersey in the NBA. And he has tons and tons and tons of fans. So where am I going with this, right? One, I think it was obviously a mistake, whether you want to say he's legal and can do that or not. He works for the NBA. They're paying him hundreds of millions of dollars throughout his career so far to represent the brand. They have their own rules. They are his employer. They are able to dictate the punishment from this. He knows that it's not allowed. He did it once before. He got suspended. He was forced to go to rehab, essentially. And now he's doing it again. So look, if you're going to play with fire, you're going to get hurt. I don't think anyone's going to be surprised at what happens here. My guess is it's a pretty lengthy suspension, right? You don't suspend him for eight games the first time. Then he does it a couple months later and you suspend him for 20. Like that makes no sense. You're not going to just go from eight to 20. I think my personal opinion is it's going to be like a 41 game suspension, right? It's the off season right now. I think they're going to suspend him till the all-star break next year, about half the season or whatever it ends up coming out to. Maybe it's 40, maybe it's 50, whatever. I think it's going to be a huge suspension. I think they're going to come down really hard on him. They may find him some money. They may do other things. But ultimately, I think they're going to suspend him for a bunch of games. Because when you really think about it, what have we seen in the past, right? Gilbert Arenas pulled a gun on a teammate. He got a 50-game suspension. Now, it was the end of the year, and I think there was 50 games left, if I remember correctly. So it was throughout the rest of the year. Ron Artest got suspended 73 games for the Malice and the Palace incident. And we've seen a bunch of other big suspensions for similar incidents. Now, again, John Morant didn't point the gun at a teammate. He didn't kill anyone. He didn't shoot the gun. He flashed it while rapping a song, potentially even in his driveway in a car while parked. I don't think it's the end of the world. I think it's extremely immature considering his circumstances and who he is and the people that look up to him. But I don't think it's the end of the world, right? I think he can come back from this. I think potentially uh, he gets suspended for a considerable amount of games and he has to show that he has changed and he's really learned. And I think the important thing is here, like he didn't trick anyone into what happened last time. Bill Simmons had a hilarious tweet over the weekend where he said, I've lost all faith in 96 hour rehab facilities in Florida because it was a joke, right? He went to this facility in Florida to get rehab and he was there for like three days, four days. And he came back and he did this interview with Jalen Rose and a couple other people and said, I'm really apologetic. I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do anything again. And you could just tell, right? Like you could tell when you watch some of these things, the people that are apologetic and going to change and the people that aren't. And it was explicitly clear to at least me and a bunch of other people too, that like this wasn't over with. It just wasn't over with. And I think we've realized that, right? He's done it again now. And, and potentially he could be doing other things too that we don't know about whatever it is. But this was on Instagram Live. It was for everyone to see. It went out immediately. And within hours, right, things changed on social media. So more importantly, though, I want to talk about the financial impact of this. John Morant cost himself already. He's already cost himself $40 million. So the way that these contracts work in the NBA is if you're named to an all-NBA team, you have an opportunity to gain a bigger contract by staying with your current team. They want to incentivize small market teams to keep their biggest superstars and not just go to the biggest markets. So they allow you to sign players for higher amounts. John Moran did not make an all-NBA team this past season because he was suspended and because of all these other incidents. 
Now, look, you can say maybe he wouldn't have made it regardless. I think he would have made it. He's one of the best players in the NBA. He would have been a shoe in for it. In my mind, he was playing great basketball and so forth, but he didn't make the team. It cost him $40 million on his next contract, literally. So holding up a gun at a strip club on a visiting trip to another city cost him $40 million on a contract. Now, the reason why this is so annoying to someone like me and other people I imagine is that's generational money, right? Like he's already gotten a huge contract. He signed a $194 million deal with the Grizzlies, but $40 million is life-changing money. He's already set for life. He's got generations that are set for life. And you have to understand what you're doing here, right? $40 million can literally change lives. It's setting you up for generations, you and your family, especially people that come from nothing, right? And you have to take that all into account. You have to realize how costly some of these mistakes are. Obviously, that didn't teach him enough things. The eight-game suspension didn't teach him enough things. The rehab visit didn't teach him enough things. And $40 million is not it. I think this is potentially a $100 or $200 million mistake, to be honest. And it depends how long he keeps this up and how significant the suspension is from the NBA. But we're already at $40 million from just the all-NBA team alone. Then he has this huge deal with Powerade. Days before the first controversy, Powerade signed him to a multi-year deal to be the face of their sports drink as they embark on one of the biggest marketing pushes in their 36-year history. They already planned to spend $10 million on ads in 2023 alone with him as the face of the brand. They had a five-year plan to revitalize the brand, and he was going to be the main person of that. He was going to star in commercials, billboards, events, store displays, all of that stuff. And what have they done since? They've pulled every single television ad featuring Job Moran. Literally every single ad. They had $10 million of ads lined up this year to spend featuring him. And it's not only just the brand, right? Like obviously he gets cash from Powerade and it's great, but it helps with everything else, right? It's basically free marketing. You're getting paid to be marketing. If you're John Morant, you're on TV with Powerade, you're on billboards, you're doing all these things, you're being played on TV during the NBA finals. Millions of people are seeing you. It's marketing for you. So that's a huge miss on other opportunities that he would have been able to get anyways, not only including the multi-year deal from Powerade, but he also has a Nike deal. So Nike pays him a lot of money. It's, it's rumored to be about $12 million a year. They just released his signature shoe. And look, they backed him up after the first incident. They said, we appreciate Jaws' accountability and that he is taking the time to get the help he needs. We support his prioritization of his well-being. Next thing we know, he does it again. I think this deal is seriously in jeopardy. There's already people like Mike Wilbon tweeting out saying, my kids are not going to be buying John Morant shoes. I like him as a player, but he sets a bad example for how people should act. He's a role model to people, and this is not how I want my kids to act. Now, look, some people are going to do that, and some people aren't going to do that. But I think Nike has an image to protect here. They have a brand to protect. And I don't know if they'll drop him completely, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if they did. At the very least, I think they're going to be suspending his involvement with the brand or pausing that relationship for a considerable time period, especially if he's suspended for a considerable amount of next season. And then it's kind of a wait and see approach and what could happen after that. Look, it is very simple in my mind. There's employment restrictions by the NBA. You're not allowed to do this stuff. He has a history of this stuff with the other three to four different incidents that I've already labeled. You cannot be a franchise player. You cannot be the face of the league and be doing these different things. The NBA is paying him hundreds of millions of dollars, giving him a platform to change the lives of himself and his family for generations to come. And he is giving it all up by acting stupid. I hope he figures it out. I hope he is able to get himself in line. And I hope he's able to turn his career around because at the end of the day, he's only 23 years old. He's extremely talented. Everyone does dumb shit when they're younger. I certainly did. I'm sure people listening to this did too. Everyone wants to say, I would be better. I would understand the gravity of the situation. I wouldn't be doing these things. And maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. You don't ever know what's going on with someone's personal life. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I wish him the best of luck. I don't want to see this happen to anyone. And I certainly don't want it to see 
play out in the media on a big stage to some of the best athletes in the world. I hope Ja gets the help that he needs. I hope he takes these things more seriously. And I hope he goes to rehab for longer than 96 hours this time. This episode is sponsored by SoFi. SoFi is the all-in-one finance app, helping you bank, borrow, invest, and save. SoFi's mission is to help members achieve financial independence and realize their ambition all in one app. It's the single app you need to get your money right. I'm a SoFi member and I love it. SoFi is legit and they comply with the strict regulatory standards of the FDIC so you can be sure that your money is safe. Visit SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano to learn more. That's SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano. All right, let's get back to this episode. Okay, the third and final thing I want to talk about today is the NFL and Peacock. The NFL announced last night that they have assigned a deal that gives Peacock the exclusive rights to a wildcard playoff game next year. Wall Street Journal says Peacock paid around $110 million for a one-year deal to air one playoff game exclusively on their streaming service. Now, first off, let's just be clear. That is a ton of money for one NFL game. $110 million to stream one game on your service. For context, Apple is paying $250 million annually for exclusive rights to more than 350 MLS games. 350 MLS games are played throughout the calendar year. Apple has exclusive rights to every single one of those. They're paying $250 million annually. Peacock is paying $110 million for one NFL game or essentially four hours of live content. That, ladies and gentlemen, is why the NFL is king in the United States. Obviously, they have more viewers. A lot of people are going to be watching a playoff game. But this is probably, in my mind, going to be one of the lowest viewed playoff games probably of all time, or at least in recent memory, because of the paywall, because of what you have to do to subscribe to the service, and people are going to be unwilling to do it. Why? I already think we're actually getting a little bit of fatigue from streamers. The NFL now, to watch all of the games this season, you're going to have to have CBS, Fox, NBC, ESPN, ABC, Amazon, NFL Network, ESPN+, Peacock, and if you want Sunday Ticket, you also need YouTube TV. Now, some of those services are included with other services, right? So if you get YouTube TV, you have ESPN, you have Fox, you have CBS, you have NBC, ABC, whatever, right? But you have now three to four to five different services that you have to buy to watch every single NFL game. And this has changed, obviously, dramatically. But what I think the NFL is doing is they're gearing up for the next round of rights. And that sounds kind of silly to say because we just negotiated 10-year deals. So the next rights go until, I think most of them go until 2033. And the landscape is going to change a lot over this next decade. In my mind, when we wake up in 10 years, we're going to have a completely different media landscape than we see today. A lot of the cable channels are going to be out of business. It's just not going to be economically feasible for them to run the current model. There's a loss in subscribers from a cable perspective. We'll hit a floor, but I don't think they're going to run this. ESPN has already said at some point they're going to transition everything over to ESPN+. Plus. All of the content have a multi-channel approach. But I think we're going to see something in 10 years where streaming is the norm, and we want to get consumers ready for that. So if you're the NFL, you're saying, look, we want to be able to ease them into this. We want Peacock to have a deal. We want Amazon to have a deal. We want Apple to eventually have a deal. We want YouTube TV to have Sunday Ticket. So we're going to ease our way into this. We're still going to have CBS and Fox and NBC and ABC and ESPN and all these partners work with us today and over the next 10 years. But we want people to be ready for this when it comes in 10 years in 2033. And I think we're going to see this over the next few years. If they're doing it with Peacock today for $110 million, it's not the last time they're going to do it. And to be honest, this is one of the first times that I saw the NFL really say like, screw the fans, right? Obviously they did that a little bit with Amazon, but what Amazon's doing is kind of cool, right? They brought in this whole new broadcast team. They're doing things on their own and that's the future, right? I think people see Amazon as this player that can buy a bunch of sports rights and they're building up this huge division. They're building content out. They're doing all these different things. But now the NFL is saying, screw the fans. We're doing this for money. 
and they don't need to, right? They're going to be doing about $20 billion a year in annual revenue this upcoming season, and they don't need to do it for an extra $110 million. They just don't. But that's where the owners are, and that's what they want to do for the money. For Peacock, I also don't think it makes a ton of sense, right? You're not going to make money on this deal. There's no way you're going to get $110 million in annual signups that don't churn. It's just not going to happen. They have a uh, Week 16 exclusive game, too, so they have two exclusive games this year, Week 16 in the first round of the playoffs. But if you get a free month membership, a 30-day trial, you can watch both games cancel without paying a dime. Maybe they cancel that right before it starts When if people try to go do that. But my point is simple. They're not going to be able to recap this. Essentially, what it is, is it's probably a loss leader in a marketing play where you're going to get a big chunk of this money back from people that subscribe, but you're also going to get a bunch of people talking about it, not only today, but as it comes up next season. And it's going to be something where you're able to make some of that money back from an awareness perspective and people that sign up and forget to cancel or other things like that. So it's something to keep an eye on. I don't think it's over. This is one of those things that's only going to get more prominent. People were joking on Twitter today that eventually the NFL is going to do the Super Bowl this way. And like people have talked about this in the past and it's kind of been treated as a joke, but I don't really think it's a joke, right? Like if the NFL was to come back and say, and really consider the fact that they can get more money by offering this as a, like a pay-per-view or something like that, or to a streaming service or something, then they would do it, right? I just don't think they're there yet, but in 10 years, maybe they are there and maybe that's something that they do. Maybe it's sooner. But if you look at the landscape today, people are paying 80 bucks to watch freaking Jake Paul fight. They're paying the same amount of money to watch other people fight, YouTubers, whatever it is. There are subscriptions on Twitter. There are subscriptions. There's a bunch of micropayments everywhere. There's Substack. There's all these different things. This is coming more pronounced by the day. And my guess is that it will become more popular in the NFL eventually. All right, that's it for today. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Please do me a favor and make sure you are subscribed to the podcast feed on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this and share it with a friend. The best way to grow this podcast is to share it with a friend. I create all of this content for free and I only ask one thing of you guys. It's a gentleman's agreement. Share this podcast with at least one friend. It helps us grow the audience. It helps the podcast get better and bigger. And it is something I really appreciate. So we'll talk later this week and I hope all of you have an amazing day.